Hello, and welcome to the Tower Hill Church Podcast. This is Marisa from the Tower Hill Production Team. Thanks so much for tuning in. Whenever or wherever you are listening from, we hope this podcast helps you grow in your faith. And we hope you share it with others so that they can grow in their faith too. When we say we have faith in Jesus, what exactly do we mean? We are deep in our fall sermon series called I Believe, and we're unpacking line by line the Apostles' Creed and discovering that God is much bigger than our version that we often carry around. This week is part four, so let's listen in right now. In the middle of this sermon series on the Apostles' Creed, and it may seem like sort of an odd thing. It's a pretty technical series, like we're getting into a lot of details and I feel like I have to sort of set you up for that. Because if it's your first day here, you're like, that was really intense, man. That was, that was de- I don't know what just happened there. But I think this is really important for understanding our faith. Maybe you don't realize it, but the Apostles' Creed is what the very earliest followers of Jesus believed about Jesus. And that's what we say that we believe today. So it's important to know what you're saying you're believing. And some of you grew up saying the Apostles' Creed every single week. And, he, and when pressed to talk about what does it mean, you're just like, um, yeah, I don't know. It's just, <laughs> it means the creed. You know, it's just what we say all the time. So here's why I think this matters. Belief turns into behavior. Whatever you believe shows up in your behavior. You could say one thing. I know what you believe based on what you do. Right? I could believe, oh, God's got this. I could trust God no matter what. And then the first thing comes up, and I freak out. It shows me I don't really believe what I say I believe, because my behavior. And listen, I know we all have our moments, okay? It's not, we don't execute this perfectly, but belief drives behavior. You see this in sports constantly. Kids go out on the field. They see the other team coming off the bus. You see that guy? You see number 91? That guy's huge. I think he drove here. He had a beard. Like... <laughs> Right? And what happens is, before they even step it on the field, it's like game over. You believe you're going to lose, you're going to lose. This is true in life. Belief drives behavior. So what does it mean when we say we believe in Jesus? Right? What does it mean? I mean, listen, we could have the coexist bumper sticker, and we want everybody, everybody's happy, everybody believe whatever, you do you, right? And that's fine. But what do we mean when we say we believe in Jesus Christ? It matters. Here's an example. If I just think that Jesus wasn't God, which many people do, like, I don't believe he was God. He was a good teacher. He was a great moral leader. I appreciate his life and his wisdom, and I'll try to implement it, you know, if I can. And and I would sort of treat Jesus like I would treat any kind of person from the past who had influence on culture. And I would say, okay. But it's a lot different if I believe that he's the son of God who died and rose from the dead to forgive me of my sins. That's a much different claim on my life, which incidentally is, I think, why a lot of us waited to put our faith in Jesus because we knew, oh my gosh, this means like this matters how I live my life. And there's, there's some kind of consequence. There's some sort of like pressure on me. And then, you know, like when you're a kid, you're like, well, I'll be a Christian. I, I think it's good, but I'm going to wait so I can do all the stuff I want to do now. 
And then, you know, someday I will come to faith. Okay, I mean, let's, you know, we all got our strategies of life. But the problem is, it's, the Christian faith is for, is, is to be lived. It's not just for, you know, your sort of ticket to heaven. It's bringing heaven to your life now. Bringing peace and joy. That missing piece of you that you've been chasing and everything else and you haven't found yet. The reason is because that's, it's a God-shaped hole in our hearts. And when we find a relationship with him, it changes how we live now. Not just someday. Just like pole vaulting. I know, we've been talking about this, all you pole vaulters out there. I know, he, I know what you do on the weekends. When you're pole vaulting, you can't just stick the pole in the ground and execute the jump. That's not how it works. You put it in a strike plate. Strike plate's the technique that helps you execute the pole vault. In a similar way, the Apostles' Creed is like the strike plate to make sure that the God that we say we're believing is every bit the God that his first followers said he was all those years ago. Otherwise, we get a lesser than version of God that simply isn't strong enough when the hard times come. I get people come to me all the time, like, I'm so mad at God because of this and this and this, and I'm like, I would be too if I believed in that version of God. That's not the God that I know. Oh. So what have we learned so far in the Apostles' Creed? Again, you could go back and listen to some of these. We did some deep dives on a few of these topics. But the first is that it's Trinitarian in structure, which means we believe in Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In fact, that is the defining characteristic of what makes something Christian. Is it Trinitarian? So you can kind of weed out the cults, right? And when you find out that they believe in a Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And if they don't, they're technically not Christian. Not according to me, but according to the faith of the first Christians. All right, the second is that we know the creed was written down later because the first people who followed all had agreement. But then a teacher came in, the first kind of heretic, I love, that's, that word's got a little baggage, but uh, the one who was teaching false teachings, Marcion, in about 180 AD. And so they're like, no, 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 what you're saying about Jesus is not the Jesus we've been worshiping and following. That version of Jesus is out of bounds, so we need to write this down. So you notice the creed says a lot about Jesus and hardly anything about the Father and the Holy Spirit because that was the controversy of the day. Who is Jesus? How is he human? How is he divine? Why does it matter for my life? And we said last week, he's fully human, fully God, one person, two natures, and how this was very important in what we say we mean that he went to the cross and died for us. How could he die for us if he wasn't human? How could he, how could he accomplish it if he wasn't God? He needed to be both. As St. Anselm uh, of Canterbury, which, you know, I never bring up St. Anselm, but he said it really nicely. Since only God can satisfy the penalty of sin and only a human ought to, then it is necessary for a God-human to do it. As we get into today's part of the creed, I wanted to start by uh, talking a little bit about my childhood. When I was growing up, my mother was a music fanatic. So, she had albums and albums. Remember? Remember albums? Although, although my kids, like, it's come, it came back around, and now it's cool, so everybody knows. But she had, we had the thing where you had the shelves with cinder blocks. Some of you know, you know what I'm talking about. You don't go buy bookshelves. No, you make them out of cinder blocks and planks of wood. Tons of albums on it. My mom always had music going. 
She was also a music person. So she well, was a trained opera singer. She sang with choirs. She did musicals. That's how she met my dad. She played violin. She played piano. Uh, she, it, music all the time. And she was a true disciple of the Beatles. I grew up, it was all Beatles all the time, Paul McCartney especially. Anything Paul McCartney ever did. And then, of course, you know, everything else. I was introduced to music so young, and I'm actually really thankful for that. It was a wonderful way to grow up. Uh, but my mom would tell you, you know, she passed away years ago, but whenever somebody would bring up the W word, she had something to say. What's the W word? I'm glad you asked. Woodstock. My mother went to Woodstock. And oh, did she let you know it. If you had anything to say about Woodstock, she would listen with a very keen ear to see if you were getting it right. And if you said something a little bit amiss, bam, she'd slam the door and correct you. No, 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 I was there. My mother, though, as it turns out, she was very naive. She once asked when she was pregnant with me, she was 23, she asked how the baby was coming out, okay? So that was my mom. That was my mom. So she didn't go to Woodstock, like, looking for Woodstock. And uh, she wanted to go for the music. And so she asked uh, her mother if she could go. And, of course, you know, my grandma had no idea what it was. And my mom, in her head, she thought it was going to be, like, picnics. And we're all just going to listen to music. And, you know, and my, <laughs> my grandma packed a, a literal picnic basket with fried chicken in it for her. And uh, they took grandma's car, her, her and her best friend, and they went to Woodstock. Of course, they get to Woodstock, and it was, you know, just, <laughs> it was just the most opposite thing, like drugs and mud, and it was just awful. Everything was awful. Bathroom situation. I have the stories, if you're ever interested. Um, but the funniest part to me was when they were going in, she said, there was such a long line of cars, and it was a distance to the venue. And what was happening was people were hitching rides. They were just sitting on top of people's cars. Cars were built a little different back then. And, uh, and, and they were just hitching rides to where the music was. And a bunch of kids got onto my mom's car, grandma's car, and my mom sticks her head on and goes, Get off, you hippies! <laughs> Peace and love. Peace and love. That was my mom all the way. So I love when she used to talk about Woodstock, but she would make it clear if you better not get it wrong, because what would she say? I was there. I was there. And weird as that story is, it does have a connection with how we got to what we say we believe about Jesus. The disciples, listen, the eyewitnesses of the miracles, the people that were around, the people who were in Jerusalem that day, when he was crucified. So many people saw it with their own eyes and they could say, I was there. That's like, again, I said this a couple weeks ago that you probably remember high school. For some of you, it wasn't that long ago. For some of you, it's right now. But if the president of the United States showed up at your high school, you would remember it. So years later, someone's like, hey, remember when the president came and ate lunch with you? No. That didn't happen. Like, I don't remember all the details, but I would remember that. I think people would remember if Jesus didn't happen the way it happened. 
I was there. I saw. No, no, no. You're wrong. He was crucified. No, he was tortured. No, uh, they did put his body in the tomb. No, we couldn't find the body. Like, I was there. And I believe it with my dying breath for many of them. 2 Peter 1.16 says it this way, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Why do I think this is important? Because there are some people who think that the Christian faith was sort of like fabricated or were like myth. But what we discover is it's rooted in actual historical events that people at any time could have said, no, 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 that's not how it went down. I was there. That's the power of the Christian faith. It's deeply intertwined with actual history. So this is important in this part of the creed. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. Just some light topics for your Sunday morning. All right, here we go. This is why it's important. Okay. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. This is weird to me. If you were inventing a religious system, why would you include a non-believer who is credited for sentencing your Savior to death? That's a weird thing to put in a creed that you say all, all the time. But it's really important. This Roman governor actually existed. We get lots of stories about him in the New Testament. He very famously uh, allowed Jesus or sentenced Jesus to death, but it was sort of an unusual situation. Here's how. So in the system at the time, the Roman Empire was very smart about how they controlled the people that they conquered. They let them self-govern to an extent because they didn't want to deal with the hassle and they wanted them to feel like they had some control. So in the Jewish system, they had the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish leaders. They're the ones who wanted to sentence Jesus to death, but they didn't have the authority to carry out an execution. It had to be done by Rome. So they would bring their case to the Roman governor and the Roman governor would usually just rubber stamp it and do it because, hey, if you guys want to execute somebody, fine. It's how they keep the peace. It's how they keep control. So this should have been a rubber stamp from the beginning. But they bring Jesus to him. And we get all sorts of wild accounts, right? Uh, it, one of the stories is that uh, his wife has a vision of Jesus and says, don't do this. He is, when he's confronted with Jesus, he seems to hesitate. He offers the crowd a different prisoner. Do you remember this? Barabbas. He says, okay, it's a custom that we do sometimes. We'll release one of the prisoners that you want. We have Jesus. Please take Jesus, Jesus. Or Barabbas. And, of course, they choose Jesus. And finally, he, he, he washes his hands. Remember this? Everybody, I mean, my goodness. Everybody, whether you're religious or not, you know Pilate washing his hands of this. This is in our creed. Why? It's because of the historical proof of the events of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have archaeology to back it up. They found inscriptions uh, that existed. So one of the things that you have to do is you have to say, well, is there any evidence outside of the Bible that verifies what we learn about in the Bible? That's an important question. The answer is yes. So there was a Pontius Pilate. He was a governor of Judea at the time that Jesus was executed. And it is archaeology. It's evidence. There's an inscription that was dated to the exact time. So there's things like that that back up that this actually happened in history. In fact, 
uh, under Emperor Tiberius was the emperor when Jesus was crucified. We have a full account of Tiberius and his reign, right? We know an awful lot about this time that Jesus died. The New Testament is actually very careful to locate the events in history. Why? So people can say, I was there. You got any questions? Go ask Jethro. Go ask Billy. Go ask Fred. Go ask Mary. They were there. These are the people. These are the places. I just say Jethro because that's my favorite biblical name. All right. That was Moses' father-in-law, by the way. Okay, next. Then the Jewish leaders, watch this. Watch how it locates this. Then the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas, a very specific person, the head of the Sanhedrin, to the palace of the Roman governor. Again, a very specific place. By now it was early morning, a very specific time. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, very specific cultural, religious. They did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. Again, it's locating it a specific time of year, specific time of this Jewish festival, specific religious idea. Everything's very specific. There are details. It's not once upon a time there was this man, Jesus. No, it's actually laid out for us in history. And I think that matters. I think that helps us to trust that this is true. The amazing thing about Christianity is its historicity. All right, we do believe he suffered under Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, died, and was buried. Why is that important? Well, if you remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Marcion and the Gnostic view that was uh, going on. It was saying that, well, Jesus couldn't have really been alive because that would make Jesus bad, because material world bad, spiritual world good. So you can't have a good thing in a bad human container. So he must have just been pretending. He didn't really. And what the, early, what the followers of Jesus were saying, like, no. Like, look at what the New Testament actually says. He was crucified, died, and was buried. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. I often wonder if Pilate did that uh, we assume it's out of irony or it's like, you know, he's trying to kind of stab at Jesus claiming he was king of the Jews. But there's a part of me that wonders if he did that because he felt moved. And maybe he felt he needed to put that sign there. I don't know. I guess we'll, I, well, maybe we'll know one day, but we don't know now. But I often wonder about that. Jesus being crucified, here's what we know. Crucifixion was not something that happened in secret. Crucifixion was intentionally a public execution with the highest degree of shame possible. And usually the people crucified were stripped naked, put on display for everyone. They, of course, had to endure this physical plane. That's why he was on the top of that mountain so that everybody in Jerusalem could see that he was the one uh, or whoever was crucified. And, it, I mean, it's just so, you can't even get your head around the pain, 
right? And you didn't usually die from your wounds of crucifixion. You died from suffocation. Because once you're hanging on the cross, you have to hold yourself up to breathe. And then after you lose your strength, you, you end up just suffocating. It was about shame. And that's what Jesus went through for us. He was crucified. And there are accounts of him being crucified outside of the New Testament. Now, what happens next? Well, he dies. He doesn't pretend to die. He dies. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. He died. And I think to say, well, Jesus was just pretending. He wasn't really human, so he didn't really suffer. And he was just, I think it definitely robs you of the moment. First of all, it doesn't make much sense. But it definitely robs you of what he decides to endure in his human nature for us. And it's also saying, like, when he said things like, I'm thirsty, he didn't really mean it. When he was going through it, he was just faking. It doesn't make any sense. This is why it matters what we say we believe. Well, then maybe somebody says, well, maybe he wasn't really dead. He was only mostly dead. Thank you. There's a few. There's like five of you that got that. Right, so, I mean, maybe he wasn't really, maybe he wasn't quite dead. And there's actually what's fascinating to me, and I don't believe, I mean, how could you anticipate all these questions that would come later? But even as part of what happens from the account that we get from John's gospel, John 19, it says that the soldiers even made sure that he was, just in case he hadn't died. Why? Why would they care about that? Because they knew the claims that his disciples were saying he was going to rise again from the dead. Wouldn't you make sure he's really dead? You don't want an uprising on your hands when all of a sudden this Jewish king comes back to life. You kidding me? That would be a nightmare. No, we're going to make sure he's dead and buried in the tomb. So one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. What is that? We don't really know. The speculation is, is when they pierced around the heart that there's a a fluid sac around the heart, the pericardium, and it would make sense that blood and fluid would flow from that to make sure that he was dead. He was dead. He was all the way dead. Why does that matter? Because he did, he took on for himself the punishment of sin so we wouldn't have to. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. With Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it with the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. 
At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. He was crucified, died, and he was buried. He was buried in the tomb. The third part, and by the way, you know, again, as I've been preparing these sermons, I'm like, there aren't a lot of room for jokes in here. You know what I mean? Like, it's just like, this is the heavy part of the Christian faith. But how do you get to, you know, when we transition to like Christmas season and it feels light and it feels happy and it feels good, how do you ever get there without knowing the depths to which he went for us? How do you ever get to real joy if you don't really understand the real pain? Because then, then it is just sort of a myth or, or fairy or fantasy. Like it's just a big feel good. Yeah, it's a feel good, but you got to know why it feels as good as it should feel because of what he did for you. This third part is the most controversial part of the creed, actually. He descended into hell. There are some who don't include this part in their creed still to this day. It was a late addition. It wasn't part of the original Apostles' Creed. It came a couple hundred years later. So why do we say it? Well, I believe it does accurately reflect, especially the theology of the Apostle Paul, as he's writing in his letters, to talk about how did Jesus pay the price for our sins. But, I don't know, not everybody agrees. Not everybody includes this part. He descended into hell. All right, this theological late ad. Here we go. At the, on the cross, when he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was bearing the weight of all of human sin. I once heard a, a pastor, I think it was Tony Campolo once, gave a message, and it was something to the effect of he was asking the people in the congregation, Who is the most evil person? Get that person in. Evil person in history. And you heard all sorts of, you know, Hitler came up more than once, right? You hear all sorts of, the most evil people in history. Ted Bundy, you know, all all these. And what Tony Campolo said was, no, it was Jesus as he hung on the cross. I know, get this. He said, but if you think it through, he was bearing the weight of sin for all the Hitlers. For all the Ted Bundys, for all of us, all sin of all time as he's hanging on the cross and bearing the weight of our sin so that we wouldn't have to. I don't know, but I will say there is something going on as Jesus takes upon the sin for us. The reason he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is because God had turned his back on the sin that he was bearing. I know, this is like, But it's important. He descended into hell to pay the penalty of sin. There were no shortcuts. God did so that we wouldn't have to. He bore the sins of humanity. He laid them down in hell. And he left. He rose again, freeing us from sin and death. It's kind of like National Treasure. It's a great theological film, National Treasure. Nicolas Cage, anyone? You tracking with me? Okay, good. To the, <laughs> I was wondering there for a second. We're about to have a movie night because you need to be educated. 
So, National Treasure. He, uh, Nicolas Cage, Ben, the character, ben, steals the Declaration of Independence so that the Declaration of Independence won't get stolen. That's, that's the plot. It's, it's good, though. Yeah, it's good. But he does it, and, and he ends up saving it, right? Saving it from the bad guys. But at the end, remember, he's, he's sitting down with Harvey Keitel's character, the FBI agent, and they're sitting down, and uh, Ben's like, yeah, I really don't want to go to prison for stealing the Declaration of Independence. And what does he say? Remember what he says? Someone has to go to prison, Ben. This terrible, this terrible infraction happened against the law. Somebody had to pay the price. They work out later who that somebody is. But I think the point's the same. Somebody had to take care of that sin. Otherwise, we'd be on the hook. Jesus did for us so that we don't have to. As 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And here's, I think, the most powerful part. Jesus looks at every one of us right into our eyes. And he says, I was there. I bore sin and death and I descended into hell so that you can live. I was there for you. Whatever you think about this life or the one to come, I made it possible for you to enjoy God forever. To enjoy life now and in all eternity. To get the most out of your human existence. To show you what real love looks like. To show you what real grace feels like and for you to live accordingly. I always say, Christians, we should be, that's what I don't get about Christians. <laughs> it's a weird thing for a pastor to say, but I, what I don't get about Christians is they can come off so incredibly judgmental. And I wanna just like give them a little, you know, I won't, but I just want a little tune up. Because as Christians, we know better we didn't deserve any of it, and we got it anyway. We are living examples of grace. We should be the most humble people on the planet. We know we did. It's not because of what we did or didn't do. It's because of what he did for us. He was there. We weren't. He was there so we wouldn't have to be. I pray that for all of us, we would know what we say we believe about Jesus. Because listen, a lesser version of God won't be big enough to carry the weight of your life. A lesser version of God isn't really God at all. We don't want to carry around fake God. We want Jesus, the Christ, in our hearts and in our lives. It matters what we say when we say, I believe. Amen. Amen.